for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under law but under grace now I'm preaching this because it has been something on my heart just lately and uh, so it's been prepared especially for you this morning now you'll know all about Romans that it's the most radical and evangelical of the writings of Paul that uh, it sets forth the gospel in the clearest terms it was Romans and the exposition of Romans through Martin Luther and the reformers at that time that cleared away the, the fog of medieval Catholicism and it is the understanding of Romans that can clear away the fog of false faith and error today and uh, uncertainties in our own minds Romans gives us the purest truth about sin and judgment about the grace of God the cross of Christ about salvation and the way of the Christian life there's an, a little section of three chapters that deals particularly with Israel we need to read Romans again and again so that we can know what we believe and uh, be quite sure how God wants us to live so study this book and out of this tremendous epistle we take this one verse this morning as a key sin shall not have dominion over you it's a glorious truth now in this letter Paul goes to great pains in the early chapters of the book to show that sin has dominion over the whole world chapter 1 he describes people who are obviously bad well we expect that they would be under the dominion of sin but in chapter 2 he deals with people who are ostensibly good the Jews who think they have the law the covenants and live according to it and then he shows that they also are under the dominion of sin so that when we come to chapter 3 in verses 9 and 19 and 23 he says um, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles are all under sin and verse 19 it says that all the world may become accountable to God that every mouth may be closed or as I think the King James says all the world may become guilty before God again of course in verse 23 he says the similar thing all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God so the whole world he shows in these three chapters is under what he calls the dominion of sin now we may ask the question this morning how does sin have dominion over us there are many words for sin in the scriptures I've counted up some 20 at least of words for sin and associated words there are some here in this very verse 23 we have the word sinned sin means missing the mark or missing the way and this is adequately explained here we sin we fall short of the glory of God we miss the mark of God's perfection and God's glorious standard that he sets then in 118 we have another word we have the word unrighteousness wrath of God is revealed against 
ungodliness and unrighteousness. Unrighteousness means not being right, not being straight, being crooked. Ungodliness means not conforming to the character of God and the will of God. Then in chapter 4.25 we have the word transgression. He was delivered up for our transgressions. And the heart of the word transgression is not just that you, you uh, trespass on somebody else's property, but that there is a rebellious spirit. It is the word rebellion. This is the deepest word for sin in the Bible. Rebellion against the authority of God. And then in chapter 5.14 we have the word offense. Adam's offense. Sin is that which is offensive to God. It offends his holiness. So here are some of the definitions of sin. And sin is not some negative thing. It's not some failure. It is a virulent, powerful thing. It is something that motivates us, impels us, is instinctive in us, and it controls us. It is mastery over us. Sin has mastery. Well, now, how is this mastery shown? Well, there are four things at least. The mastery of sin is shown by the blindness which it brings, by the guilt that it involves, by the death that it, that it brings, and by what is called the area in which it operates, the body of death or the body of sin. And we'll look at these quickly. First of all, sin controls us through the blindness or the darkness it produces. And we see this in several verses. In chapter 121 it says about uh, that they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Foolish heart was darkened. Chapter 3 verse 11, there is none who understands. And chapter 11:25 he talks about Israel and he says even Israel is like this. It says they are a partial hardening has happened to Israel and he speaks of blindness that has befallen Israel now the Bible speaks a lot about this darkness in the first epistle of John it speaks about living in the light and living in the darkness and sin brings darkness you know we are helpless without light in the one of the towns where we lived in Torquay there was a, a famous cave called Kent's Cavern went more than half a mile into the earth and you could go in there and when you were right in the very depths they'd switch all the lights off it was a frightening experience I realized what the scripture said about Egypt when it says there was darkness that could be felt and as one felt this blanket of darkness enclosing one was controlling one there was a sense of being absolutely helpless and that's what sin is like. People are helpless when blind. The ancient captives knew this. It was a practice to put the eyes out of captives, as they did Samson, so that the man was helpless. And sin blinds us, so that we can't see ourselves properly. We can't see God and know him. We can't know the truth. So in chapter 1, the pagan world is seen as blind. It has evidence, but it cannot see and know God. In chapter 2, the Jews are blind. They have the law, the covenants, the prophets, but they're spiritually blind. 
So here we are. And Jesus, we remember, said to the church in Laodicea, you know not that you are poor and wretched and blind and naked. This blindness. You know, so oftentimes we, we just don't see our sinfulness. We may do things that irritate other people, cause problems. And for the life of us, we can't see what we're doing. We need other people to tell us sometimes, and even then we can't see. The Pharisees were blind, utterly blind. Jesus said to them uh, that they were blind. He said, if you would only say we are blind, you would see. He said, are we also blind? Jesus is saying, yes, you are blind. And he was talking about their sinfulness. So sin brings blindness. I won't deal with that anymore. Second thing that sin brings to control us is perhaps the most important. It is guilt. Now, guilt is a state of being wrong, but being responsible for your wrong. We may feel guilty, or we may not feel guilty. But the fact is, as chapter 3, verse 19 says here, we are all guilty. The law speaks that every mouth may be closed or shut, and all the world be guilty or accountable before God. And this guilt, of course, leaves us, this epistle tells us, condemned to what is called the wrath of God. Chapter 118 says, The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness of men, because we are guilty. Now, we may have a feeling of guilt, or not have a feeling. If we have not a feeling of guilt, it doesn't alter the fact that according to God's word we are guilty, because we have sinned and we are responsible. But we may feel guilty, and many of us do, Many Christians do. We feel we fail to be what we ought to be and to do what we ought to do. We have some standard or some demand. We have our own ideals or a conscience that speaks to us. And beyond that, there's the inexorable law of God. And we stand beneath all this and we feel so guilty that we don't attain those ideals. We don't do what our conscience is telling us. We don't come up to the law of God. Now, this guilt can be a terrible master. It can blackmail you. You ever been blackmailed? It's a terrible thing. Supposing somebody is a blackmailer, he's on your track, and he's trying to spread around and threaten you with something you haven't done. You know you haven't done it. That's bad enough, but supposing you have done it. You have done wrong. You've committed some crime that no one knows about, and the blackmailer knows it, and he's after you terrible thing. But supposing you are doing a, a series of things that are wrong, how guilty you can feel. And this, the devil seeks to blackmail us, levering on our guilt. Guilt is such a, a strange thing that you, a man can commit a wrong only once in his life and evermore live under the dominion of that thing he's done wrong. He's never free of guilt. I lived for years with something in my life, a deep root of bitterness against someone, and I always felt guilty of it, about it, until I repented of it and confessed it and got it out. So you can have one thing that can leave you guilty, and guilt brings accusation and condemnation, and that is a dominion of sin. But there is another thing. Chapter 5, verse 12 speaks about 
as by one man's sin into the world, and through sin came death. Death spread to all men, because all have sinned. There is death. And this death is the separation from God which sin involves. Now here's another terrible aspect. It's so dreadful that in this chapter 5, the last part, it is called the reign of death. Look at it, verse 12. Death came through sin. Death spread to all men. Then in verse 14, it speaks about um, if by the transgression of one, many died. And then it speaks about um, verse 17, by the transgression of one, death reigned through one, Adam. And then it speaks about sin reigning, verse 21, as sin reigned in death. And physical death, of course, is not all that's spoken about here. It is the sign of a far worse death, of that separation from God, from his living presence and influence in the soul that leaves us open to spiritual decay and ultimate loss. Now this is true of the man outside of Christ. But I believe this in a sense can apply to Christians too. Where there is unrepented sin in the life of a Christian, there comes a deadness in the soul. We lose the sense of fellowship with God and a walk with God. And there comes a deadness either in our own life or in our churches. And that is the reign of sin. Then there's a fourth thing, and it's called in chapter 6, verse 6, the body of sin. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. In chapter 7, 24, again, the cry, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Now what is this? This is the, the activity of sin within our personalities and bodies. See, in chapter 7 especially of this book, sin is described as an active power working in us against the will of God. It's called in chapter 8, verse 2, the law of sin and death. That's something which was in us that is a power. Maybe the power of, of habit, maybe the power of evil tempers, besetting pride, bitterness, lust, selfishness, you name it. It's there within us. We all know this, don't we? I do. Who of us has not cried like Paul in verse 24? Who shall set me free from this body of death, from this sense of indwelling sin and its power? So you sum all this up, you see what a comprehensive thing this reign of sin is, this dominion of sin that blinds us to spiritual realities that brings guilt and a sense of condemnation that brings this sense of separation from God and lack of fellowship with God which is spiritual death and works virulently perhaps within our personalities our minds, our emotions, our very bodies sin within us well it's a hopeless plight isn't it the power of sin and death but what a glorious promise. Sin shall not have dominion over you. That's the message of the gospel. And that is a fundamental thing for Christians. Sin shall not have dominion over you. 
Now notice it doesn't say sin shall not remain in you. It does not say you will, it will never occur in your habits or your mind, your thinking. It does not say you will not discover sin in yourself or sinful tendencies. It does not say you will never have to repent of sin. That you will never have to deal with it. Struggle against it. Oh no, it says it should not have dominion over you. One of the uh, old fathers, Flavel, said sin is like ivy. However you pull and uproot it, it will never wholly be removed until the wall in which it grows is finally taken down. It's quite a good description. What it does say, however, is that sin shall not be master over you, shall not rule or govern you, shall not hold you in its grip. Wesley puts this in one of his great sermons, The Repentance of Believers, when he says, Sin doth remain in the believer, but it need not reign in the believer. Good definition. We ask, how is this so? How is this reign of sin to be broken? Every aspect of it can be. First, the blindness. You see, God gives us light to see. And maybe the first thing he does as the Holy Spirit starts to deal with us is help us to see our own sinfulness. Augustine once said, to see oneself as a sinner is the first step of salvation. Now we don't like to see ourselves as sinners. Any more than we may like to go to the doctor and have a disease revealed to us. Say, well I've discovered that you've got something. We may not like it, we may hate it, we try to evade it. But diagnosis is always the first step in cure. And this is the first work of the Spirit. He shall convict the world of sin. What is it that gives us an insight, a revelation of sin? Well, for me, it's the cross of Christ. It's only as I see the cross, I see what Jesus had to do, can I realize what sin is. Jesus said, I came into the world that they who do not see may see. See what? See their sin. There's a story about an African in the revival which some of us have had a lot to do with in East Africa. And the, there were visions given in the early days of the revival. This African had a vision of Christ. He saw Jesus with an enormous load. And he was staggering underneath it. And he said, someone inquiringly, Lord, are you bearing the sin of the world? And in the vision, Jesus turned to him and said, No, this is your sin I'm bearing. And when he saw the enormity of his sin, as Christ was bearing it, he was utterly broken in contrition, repentance. God needs to show us our sin. And all along in my Christian life, the Holy Spirit needs to show me things I've never seen. I never realized that that was sin. You know, for a long time, I never realized that resentment was sin. I thought that was a natural reaction. I had a right to. In fact, I didn't regard irritability as sin. My father was always irritable, so I inherited it. And it's a good thing to be irritable. It works off the frustration. But then God showed me that is the beginning of evil temper. An evil temper causes murder. An irritability is the root of a very evil thing. It is sin. 
There's lack of peace, lack of self-control. There's not like Jesus. He didn't live being irritable all the time. And so God has to show me continually. Thoughtlessness is sin. Talking too much in company and not listening to other people I've found to be sin. Because it is selfishness. It's liking to dominate. And let other people always listen to me. What I've got to say. What I think. And that selfishness is sin. So there's something to be repented of. And so again and again the light has to come in to show me. And always in the light of the cross. And always in the light of Jesus. So God is always dealing with that blindness that sin produces. Praise God when our eyes are open to see ourselves. And then we see Jesus. And then we come to understand the gospel. And then all the whole panorama of God's truth opens to us. As our eyes are open, we walk and we live in the light. But secondly, guilt. Now here's the real root. Because we are guilty before God, we are under his judgment. We are separated from him. This verse says we are not under law, but under grace. What is law to do with this? Well, it is God's law that makes us guilty, and it is the law that increases our guilt. It says that where the law came, uh, sin was revealed. That's what happens. And to live under law, whether you are not a Christian or whether you are a Christian, to live under law means you're ever trying to reach the standard of perfection, trying to please God, trying to win acceptance with him, and work ourselves out of our guilt. We can never do it. And so the curse of the law is always on us. The law says, Cursed is every man that continueth not in all things of the law. And if we break one point of the law, we break all. So if we are trying to live on this basis, of seeking acceptance with God, pleasing God, by coming up to a standard of perfection in our own strength, we are living under law. But the good news is that God has given us another way to live under grace. And grace means acceptance. Acceptance not on our good performances, but on the work of Jesus alone. Jesus has fulfilled all the requirements of God's law for us. Jesus has also at the same time suffered the curse of the, our broken law. And he's taken all God's judgment against us by his death on the cross. That's what Calvary is all about. So the demands of the law have been met. The penalty has been paid. The debt has been discharged. And therefore we can be justified, it says here. Romans 5, being justified by faith. Romans 4, we're justified by his blood. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. And the only demand, that we repent and we believe. Not that we try to achieve, but that we receive what God's grace has offered. That's the answer to guilt. So when conscience accuses, Satan comes and blackmails us, or when our past rises up to trouble us, or we feel we haven't achieved, we can't cope, it is the blood of Christ that is the answer, that cleanses from all sin. And it is the blood of Christ that breaks the basic dominion of sin, which is guilt. And we can only understand these chapters in Romans when we see it is guilt that Paul is basically speaking about. Here is the dominion of sin. So the blindness, 
and the guilt are dealt with. So the death is dealt with. We can be reconciled to God. We can know him and be alive. But uh, what about the active power of sin in our bodies and in our personalities? Can this be broken? Can I live a holy life? Can I know the, the, the mastery of sin within my, my passions, my selfish desires, my thinking, my willing, my emotions? Oh yes, this is the message of Romans 6. What Romans 6 says is because we have been justified by faith in Christ, we have actually passed out of an old life into a new. And in the death of Christ is the death of our old life, as well as the dealing with our sin. In our new birth, there is a new life. And the Holy Spirit is given to us to live in us and to realize the power of Jesus in us to fulfill the law of God. That's what Romans 8 says. Verse 3 and 4. God sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in that offering he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So the reign of grace takes over and it eliminates slowly the reign of sin. We're not to live under the reign of sin but the reign of grace and this says Romans 6 is as we yield. What do we yield? Romans 6.13 We are to yield ourselves. It says present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the God. And so as I give myself to the Lord and then again in, it says present in verse 19 my members Present your members, the parts of my life, my, my mind, my emotions, my instincts, my parts of my body, everything yielded to God. The Holy Spirit brings the reign of grace upon us. I want to say a word here about how this works in practice. Because for many years I struggled with this truth of Romans 6 and uh, Romans 8 and Galatians of being crucified with Christ. Many Christians d did. I said, now what does it mean to be crucified with Christ? Well, somehow or other, I was involved in Christ's death. And so day by day, I'm to live reckoning myself dead. So I get up in the morning, I say, now, today, I'm crucified with Christ. I'm alive in the Spirit. I'm dead to sin. Sin is no more dominion. Uh, all's well. And before I finish shaving, I've sinned. Go to work and... I fall here and I slip there and I become blind to something else and in the end I say, well, it doesn't work. This crucifixion with Christ doesn't seem to work. Why am I not living a life that's completely free from sin if I'm crucified with Christ and risen again? And I struggled with this for, for years and it didn't work until I came to see this. Bear with me. The cross was judgment. It was a judgmental act. It was a like hanging is or electric chair here in America. It was a judgment, a legal judgment. It was men's judgment upon Christ, but it was God's judgment upon us in that death of Christ. In the cross, God was forever judging sin and judging sinners in Christ so that we might be free. 
and we must agree with God. And in our own life, we must judge sin too. Now, God judged sin in the atonement. I must judge sin in repentance. And I came to see that the only way that this crucifixion with Christ and living the crucified life and so on could really work was as I repented of sin, specifically. Each time I repented of a sin, I judged that sin. I said, look, I don't want you, I don't want to live with you, I don't want you to be part of my life. You were dealt with in the cross of Christ by God the Father. And I take that sin to the cross and I judge it too. I change my attitude towards it. Every sin, every sinful tendency, every passion, every selfish desire. And this is a continual thing. There's no end to it. There's no Puritan says, my dear sister repentance with whom I walk to the gates of glory. Repenting of deeper things, more sensitive things. Things that God shows us. Things that we thought were all right all our lives and now we see these are sinful things. We repent of them. And I believe in the repentance of the believer. It's my salvation as a Christian is to repent of sin. And then I find this. That as I repent of sin and I take my place at the cross under God's judgment at that point God works in grace not only to forgive the sin but actually to impart the opposite virtue. So if I repent of pride, God's in grace will produce in me humility. If I repent of tension, he will give me peace. If I repent of impurity, he will give me purity of heart and thought. Always the opposite. As Marie Michelin once said, for every, every wrong in myself, I find a compensating virtue in Christ. And I receive it. And this is the way. And the fact that we may fail many times, and we do, does not in the least annul our acceptance with God in Christ. That is a finished work. That is our justification. And our failure in sanctification does not cancel out our justification. But our justification should work out in sanctification. That's the process. Because it is the blood of Christ that, that justifies us. Now take this promise for yourself this morning. Away back in Genesis 3, the promise was that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. Christ is that seed. And on the cross of Christ, the seed of the woman bruised the serpent's head. He crushed Satan beneath his feet. But Satan is still alive and active. And he can only strike at Christ through us. He will strike at Christ through my self-life. Through my guilt. Through my ignorance. Through the sin working in my body and my life. He will try to wound me and destroy my peace and my joy and my witness and my faith. But as I repent and judge my sin at the cross, what happened at the cross will take place in me and the heel of the victor will come down to crush the serpent's head again and again and again. That is the victory of Christ over sin.
It is not my victory over sin. It is Christ's victory over me. And therefore Christ's victory over sin in me. And uh, Satan may assail, but he can never prevail. Praise God. So be encouraged. You may struggle with yourself, your sinful tendencies. You may mourn over your defeats. You may say, oh, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I wish that a man could rise in me, that the man I am should cease to be, and all that. But just keep repenting. And judge these sins as they occur. And judge them quickly. In fact, you can judge them before they even occur, if you think they're going to. Fly to the cross. As it was said to Luther, flee to the wounds of Jesus. Hide there. Cast yourself in helplessness, but in faith upon Christ, and prove the power of his prevailing grace. Don't trust your own goodness, your own achievements, your own acumen, your own ability. Certainly don't trust your own righteousness or religious works. Trust Christ, and Christ, and Christ alone. Look to Jesus, fly to Jesus, stand in Jesus. Let him do the work of grace in you and through you. And you will prove the power of grace, which is far mightier than all the power of sin. I want to say this, that the, there's one other practical thing here, and it is this. To live under law is to live trying to keep rules, doing or not doing what you feel you ought or ought not to do. The subtle thing is this, that in so doing, you're looking to yourself. You're examining yourself. You're saying, I've not come up to this standard. I've not been the Christian I ought to be. I'm going to try to be better. And you strive and you struggle. And the result of this will be either to lead you into pride and self-exaltation on one hand, or despair on the other. So when you succeed a little, your heart will be puffed up. When you fail, it will be cast down. And you alternate between pride and despair. That's the way of legalism. Legalism will make you critical of others who don't achieve as well as you do. And legalism will make you hard and proud. But living under grace is so different. Living under grace is to look to Christ and to Christ alone. To look to God, to give him the guilt and then give him the glory as he gives you the grace. That's the process. To live under grace means that by the power of the Spirit you grow in certain steady, reliable inclinations or virtues such as compassion or love, peace, joy, gentleness, patience all the fruits of the Spirit. You grow in these. And these, by the work of grace, become integral elements in your character. So from this Spirit-filled character there flow by a natural process, acts and conduct. So you don't struggle and strive to be and to become. You live in grace, and grace makes you the man God wants you to be. So in grace, God first accepts us as we are when we come to him. With no other demand than that we repent and receive his salvation. And then in the context of that total acceptance, 
He cleanses us through the blood. He teaches us by the word. He infuses us with his spirit. He activates us to holy living and good works. And he changes us progressively into the image of Christ. But in all this, we have to cooperate with him in faith and surrender and obedience. What a glorious truth this is, isn't it? To live under grace is to live under the gracious rule of the Lord. To live under grace is to know the expulsive power of a new love and affection in us that conquers sin. Has no more dominion over us. As Wesley once wrote, the reign of sin and death is o'er and all in Christ may be set free. Satan has lost his mortal power is swallowed up in victory. Now, this morning, what are you living under? There are these two realms. They are really mutually exclusive. You can live under law, knowing little of grace or nothing. Live striving to be, to become, to reach standards, to be the perfect Christian to do this, to do that, to do the other, and it all comes out of self. Or you can live under grace. We're not trying to be anything, but you're coming to Jesus. You're accepting your total acceptance in Christ, and you're resting in it and rejoicing in it. You're knowing that he died for you, that his blood was cleansed for you. You open your life to the Holy Spirit, God's gift to you, to dwell in you. And you are willing to obey what he says. You are willing to cooperate with him. You don't just lie passively, as though grace must do it all and you do nothing. You learn to cooperate with God in grace. You don't take God's grace and let it be an occasion for more sinning. But grace keeps you from sinning, makes you sensitive to sin, gives you a desire to repent of sin and to be free from it. It is grace. What a wonderful thing it is to live under grace. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that knowing us as you do, and knowing how hopeless and helpless we are in our sinful state, you have made a covenant of grace so that we can be accepted as we are on the ground of what another has done for us. We thank you for such love, for such a plan of salvation. We thank you that this grace can extend to every area where sin has dominion. We thank you for the grace that enlightens our blindness, and sets us free to live in the light of your word and the knowledge of God. A light that helps us to recognize our sin that we may know how to repent of it. A light that helps us to know ourselves and to one another. We thank you for that enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. 
We thank you for the cross of Christ and his blood he shed that has struck the mortal blow at guilt. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking that condemnation for us, for taking the load of our sin so great and bearing it from us. Thank you, Lord, for that grace that can deliver us from that spiritual death and deadness. We need no more be separated from God. We thank you we can have fellowship with the Father, walk in that fellowship day by day, and all the deadening influence of sin can be dealt with as we come to the blood for cleansing. We thank you for that grace, Lord, that is able to deal with our personalities, our bodies of death. We thank you that the inner working, the virulent working of sin within us, pride and jealousy, bitterness, resentment, lust, all evil in our emotions, thinking, instincts, we thank you that grace can reach there. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who has come that he might motivate us to do the will of God and fulfill the law of God in us as we walk with him. Lord, teach us to live under grace. Teach us even now to give you all the guilt that we may feel we have, not to try to work ourselves out of it, but to yield it to you and giving you the guilt to receive the grace you give and to give you all the glory. Lord, may this liberate us to live restfully, to live joyfully, to live naturally, to do out of the very unity within us <coughs> that the Spirit brings where instincts and mind and feelings are blended together into an inner unity. And out from Christ within us, we may live and work and think and speak. Lord, teach us how to live under grace. <coughs> so we just quietly think of this message what has God said to you? What has God said to you this morning about your need and your state? If you have not known the power of God's grace within you, will you just now as you pray, open yourselves up to it? Grace is God working for you in you and through you. You see that? Grace is not you working out of yourself for God, but it is God working for you in redemption, working in you in sanctification, working through you in ministry.
a wonderful thing. As you cooperate with God, He will fill you, make you a man, a woman of grace in your home, in your marriage, in your church, in your business. A man or a woman full of grace and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this. In Jesus' name. Amen.